it started a generation before that. My great uncle uh, happens to be Alvin York out of Fenters County, Tennessee. said to me, Godspeed, stay safe, and be in touch when you can. That, and that was all it took. My vice president came just to say, hey, I'm proud of what you're doing for all of us. Thank you for standing guard uh, for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. That very day, if I, if I was not before that day, that very day I became a company man and I knew yeah. that I would retire from one of the best companies <clears throat> in the world. Welcome to another Tavern Talks. I am your co-host, Travis Featherstone, joined here by Jacqueline Keeney. Uh, we have a very special guest today, uh, Tony Melson. Good to be with you guys. All right. So in a, in a past podcast, we talked about our favorite Tennessee veterans. And, well, Travis and Brandon had fantastic, really historic figures listed as their favorite Tennessee veteran. I took my moment to go ahead and list you as my favorite Tennessee veteran. And oh, wow. We, we, will, uh, we will get to that story and why you have that place in my heart. But for our listeners who don't know any basic of your background, give us a little bit about who you are, both, you know, growing up, born, raised, college, and start there. Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep that part brief. I'm honored, by the way, Jackie. Thanks. Um, I'm a lifelong Tennessean, uh, born in West Tennessee, educated in Middle Tennessee at Tennessee Tech, and uh, been working at Eastman now in East Tennessee for the last 25 years. Uh, military service. Uh, I joined uh, Air Force uh, right after Desert Storm. I was I was in a fraternity in college, and and the news broadcasts of us going out to protect freedom uh, just uh, tugged at my heart a little bit. So it was that year of Desert Storm that I I enlisted uh, in the Air Force and and spent a good twenty years there. All right. When you enlisted, were you guard, active duty, reserve? Where did you enlist at? Yeah, I, I joined the finest Air National Guard unit in the, in the <laughs> States, uh, the 134th Air Refueling Wing yeah. in Knoxville, Tennessee. You may know something about that, <clears throat> name, Jackie. Just a little bit, and I agree, it, it is the best. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> top tier, top tier. Yeah. So you enlisted. You were still in college. You started as an enlisted member. Yeah, I, I swore in because I had a couple of years of college uh, as an E3. I got that rank immediately. Delayed enlistment because I was still in classes when I raised my right hand. Uh, before I knew it, uh, the DOD expanded the intelligence career field. That's what I was going into. Uh, and they gave Knoxville an additional officer's position. So even before I went to basic training, uh, the HR department kind of tore up that contract and said, we're not sending you to basic, we're sending you to officer school. Oh, mm -hmm. so, so you, went, you went on vacation instead of actual basic <laughs> training. <laughs> sure, yeah. Right. Oh, we're right. back at that, huh? Yes, we are. We okay. are going back at that. All right, so you joined... The Tennessee Air National Guard at right. the 134th. Right. You served there, and then did you immediately start at Eastman out of college? Um, yes, I did. Yeah, in 96, that was a critical and pivotal year for me. Uh, I was having a great time in Intel. Uh, I was given an opportunity to fly for the Air Force, but I knew that would take about two years to go through undergraduate pilot training and then follow on for the tanker unit. At the very same time, I was graduating with a chemical engineering degree. 
my logic at the time was, if I go do the pilot thing, I'll probably never work for Eastman Chemical. Mm-hmm. I'll probably never be an engineer. But if I take the offer that I was sitting on with Eastman, I can be an engineer, use this degree that I spent so much time and money getting. I can also wear the uniform of my armed forces and serve my country. Yeah. So that's the decision I made in the spring of 96, and the rest is history. That's that's amazing. Well, tell us a little bit about, too, you know, at that point, um, you know, from a family perspective, yeah. right? You know, uh, is serving uh, in the military, you know, something that has, you know, generation after generation, was that an influence or, you know, you know, we've had guests on the, yeah. on the discussion that, you know, they were the first ones in their family that had right. served as well. Yeah. Uh, so were there any pros and cons and people saying, oh, no, 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 I don't know about that because uh, I've just seen a conflict um, or, you know, was your family very, very supportive of, uh, of you jumping into the military? Yeah, sure. Um, not many people know my story. I think Jackie knows it. I'll repeat it for you. Um, yes, yeah, service is, is woven through my family history. Mm-hmm. My, I grew up the son of a preacher, uh, you know, joined service organizations, served my country for 20 years, etc. Um, my grandfather served in the Navy in World War II, okay. uh, so he was a big influence on both my brother and myself. My brother attended West Point, as you did, mm-hmm. Travis. Um, but it, it started a generation before that. My great-uncle uh, happens to be Alvin York out of Fentress County, Tennessee. Uh, my my grandmother, whose name is literally America, um, uh, her sister, uh, uh, Florine, married um, Alvin's brother, Alton. So Alvin York, World War One Medal of Honor uh, winner, the, the, the legend wow. of movies. Yeah, uh, he's he's uh, he's in my blood, um, and my wife's family too. Um, Angie's great uncle is Niall Kinnick. You may not know Niall's history, but. At the University of Iowa, the stadium is named Kinnick Stadium, uh, named after the 1939 Heisman Trophy winner, Niall Kinnick. He joined the Navy immediately after college. He surpassed, he he forewent a Buffalo Bills NFL contract to join the Navy, Mm -hmm. and um, he was actually lost at sea. His plane crashed uh, uh, at sea, and we never recovered his body. So it's woven, and the military service has always been there for us. Yeah, and I I would say the... The red, white, and blue, and quite literally America, runs through your veins. Yeah, at this point. America <laughs> is strong. Nelson Blood. No, I, I really like that. So, the story I really want our listeners to hear about you, because not only is it a foundation of you as a person, but a foundation of where Eastman is today and the way we serve our veterans and our troops, and a lot of the changes that we've made. Yeah. And so... I want to hear your story about being a military member with the 134th yeah. and working at Eastman full-time when 9-11 happened. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, emotional story for me. I, I, um, I'll get through this without breaking up, I'm sure, I hope. Um, so, yeah, 9-11, I was uh, responsible for the acetone recovery area down in Building 312 in Kingsport. And um, you know, a friend of mine who knew I was very patriotic and, and military guy said, uh, you know, at the time, Captain, hey, Captain, you need to turn on the news. I, I saw what was happening. Uh, planes were hitting the building. I called down to the uh, Air Force Base, for which I was at that time responsible for security. I was the security squadron commander uh, and asked everyone to, uh, to implement force protection condition. Delta locked the place down because we were under attack. I, I knew what was coming. Uh, I packed my belongings at work. I was running home to get my go bag. 
on, on the way out of the plant, <clears throat> I called my supervisor, Kent Keebler at the time, and said, boss, uh, the president is calling, right? He's calling up his guard, and, and I'm first on the list being a security guy. And, uh, you know, he, he could have chosen anything to say. He could have said, what are we going to do without you? He could have said, what about this project that you've got working? But he didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kent Keebler, my dear friend and the time supervisor, said to me, Godspeed, stay safe, and be in touch when you can. That, and that was all it took. Um, he knew that I had duty that was above uh, any calling I had at Eastman. He, mm-hmm. he valued my service and supported me 100%. Now, fast forward one year into my two-year deployment for the War on Terror. I came home on leave. Um, my wife, who's also an Eastman employee, uh, had arranged a surprise party for me, the, you know, the one-year-down, one-year-to-go party. Uh, and uh, at that party were all my coworkers, the friends that I golf with, uh, other military members, and, and my vice president at the time. I, I, was, I was five years with the company. I was, I was a, you know, area manager type. My vice president came just to say, hey, I'm proud of what you're doing for all of us. Thank you for standing guard uh, for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. That very day, if I, if I was not before that day, that very day I became a company man, yeah. and I knew yeah. that I would retire from one of the best companies <clears throat> in the world. Yeah. I like it. I like it. And uh, something I also want to highlight is due to the events of 9-11 and what happened directly after it in the years to come, HR at Eastman had to pivot on our yeah. military leave policy. And I think you had a, a vital role in that. You worked with our good friend Jerry Bush and Doug Bounds. Yeah. And so can you talk just a little bit about how the HR policy and Eastman were able to help you and help our military members during a new crisis? Sure. I like telling this story as often as I can. You just mentioned two of my heroes. Uh, Jerry, of course, wore the uniform of the uh, U.S. Army for 23 years. But at the time of 9-11, uh, he was in HR. And... Um, I packed my stuff and I went. You know how we do, right? Mm-hmm. We get our go bag and we go. Yeah. Uh, it was not long at all before Jerry reached out to me at my station and said, I'm here to help. What can I do? And I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the first time I'd ever been mobilized by federal authority. Uh, I said, I don't know what to do with this, with benefits, with pay. I, please help me. Yeah. Not only did he help me, but he and Doug Bounds put together an, an improved policy for military leave and took it to our CEO at the time, Ernie Davenport, and convinced Ernie that we could do better than what we had been doing. At the time, uh, military members were required to uh, resign their position to go on this mobilization. Jerry said, that's not good enough. Um, The policy that he and Doug put into place uh, was in place for quite some time until you, Jackie, were able to revise it further. Uh, uh, Continued my benefits, so my, my family that I left at home still had medical coverage. I continued to accrue LOS or, or time in service, um, and I, I just can't say enough about how how meaningful uh, that care and concern was. To, from from my perspective, I was the only one in the world going through this. Uh, Jerry was doing it not for Tony Melson, but because it was the right thing to do for all the veterans yeah. that would that would have that similar experience after me. So. Yeah, huge debt of gratitude for uh, for Jerry and Doug. Yeah, so that kind of set a, I'm sure, a, a base foundation for things to come, right? Yeah. Uh, for employees that you'll never even maybe meet yeah. that may go through something similar. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's that's it's it's 
uh, you know, amazing. It absolutely is amazing. Yeah, abso- absolutely. I agree with you 100%, Travis. And I want to thank both of you for uh, your, your work in EVETS. The, the work that you're doing has allowed us to once again go back and revise that to make a policy for military leave, which, which I believe to be best in class. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a reason Eastman continues to receive accolades on being military friendly, for receiving the Freedom Award from the Department of Defense. It's because people like you are standing guard and watching out for uh, for the interest of our citizen soldiers. Yeah, so thank you for that. Really appreciate that. Um, after you, your deployment, you came home. What was coming home, and how did how did Eastman help you with that transition on coming home, you know, some family time, and then entering back into the workforce? Yeah, yeah. So back to Jerry. Jerry insisted that our, our policy include you know, some amount of time, paid status. I was an employee, again, but my, my job for the first couple of weeks was to get right with my family, right, to, to make yeah. up for last time. Yeah, so I was getting paid. Uh, my job was to stay home, right? Yeah. Mow the yard, Melson, uh, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so that was very that was huge. But even before I returned back, I can remember my, my old Eastman family, the ones that I left on 9-11, uh, were in constant contact. Kent Keebler that I mentioned to you earlier, Griff Johnson, who's a legend at Eastman, would continuously reach out and say, Tony, I don't know when you're coming home and I don't know what we're going to do with you, mm-hmm. but you got a home. Mm-hmm. You've got a home here. So just yeah. that reassurance. They didn't lean on any policy. <clears throat> they didn't have to have a policy to yeah. say that. And so, yeah, I, I came back to a commensurate role, uh, a leadership position um, to open arms from everyone there. Everyone kind of celebrated a little bit. We did some high fives. And we got down to work. So in, in my recollection of, of that time in history, it's as if I never left. That's the feeling that I came away from. When I came home in 2003, right, two years after leaving, first time I stepped foot on company property, it was as if I had not left at all. Yeah. And that was huge yeah. for me. So we've talked a couple times on, on you know the show about just holistic leadership, yeah. right? And, and, and similarities of things that we see you know, you know, within the military service and, and leaders that we've had in the military. And, and I guess what, you know, when you're describing that, and, you know, and, and these folks may not have ever served, but it sounds like holistic leaders. And it sounds like mm-hmm. that's, you know, part of the culture um, that has set up, you know, the environment for you to feel welcome, yeah. right? Um, and, and that's absolutely, you know, one of the things we're trying to, you know, you know, push for veterans, you know, right now. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's laid a lot of the foundation, too, for how the culture is um, just with, with, you know, saying thanks, you yeah. know, and treating yeah. veterans. Yeah, yeah I think my, my observation is that, um, I mean, for a long time, probably since that, you know, one-year down party, uh, I've referred to Eastman not as the company or the enterprise or the institution, but I call it the family. Mm-hmm. It really feels that way. And you yeah. know how you treat family. You're going to do what's best for <clears throat> yeah. each other. No one's in it for themselves. And uh, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a growing and mounting uh, a, a practice at Eastman of being servant leaders. Yep. We in the military, I see you guys nodding your heads, we get it in the military because service is the first part of that, servant mm-hmm. leader. And I see a lot of that being uh, being uh, used, and there's a lot of practitioners of that at Eastman, yeah. so it makes it feel really comfortable. The, the transition from military to what I see as Eastman today, yeah, it's uh, very comfortable. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up transition. So in previous episodes, we have discussed the different transitions a service member goes through. They either go from their original civilian life to military service, 
and then if you know they're active duty they transition then back into the civilian world and how that can be a difficult change i mean when you go into the military you go through basic training or you know officers training school and that's a transition that's coached to you well when you're transitioned out you don't maybe get as much of that coaching experience on mm-hmm. how to be a civilian again so we have military members who have tough struggles there well, then you had the additional transition of going, okay, I'm a guard, you know, I've got my weekends, I've got my annual training, mm-hmm. now I'm transitioning to a deployment, a long-term, mm-hmm. handling a crisis. You then had to transition back to Eastman. They were able to give you the reunification time to yeah. be with your family, get right in your head, be comfortable. So when you did step into Eastman, not only were they prepared to bring you back with open arms, mm-hmm. but you were prepared to receive it. You were in sure. the right headspace because of what they gave you. Yeah, absolutely. Another transition I want to ask you about is even these long-term transitions. You often worked Monday through Friday and then transitioned for drill weekends right. or had to put on your you know, your officer commanding hat when right. you went on annual training or TDYs. What were those smaller transitions like for you? Yeah, so, yeah, I did 15 years of that, right? I joined Eastman in 96 um, and didn't retire from the Air Force until 2011. So, yeah, I had 15 years of those mini transitions. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, uh, it, it was uh, uh, there. There was a, a burden on on being good employee, good supervisor at Eastman, good husband, good father, good friend, uh, but also being a, a citizen soldier. So um, my 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 approach was to make sure that I don't cheat one side or the other. Right, mm-hmm. uh, one of those is not more important than the other. Um, that they they. They held a place of equal importance in my in my psyche, in my mantra. And so to make sure that everyone was taken care of, I didn't uh, borrow from one to pay the other, so to speak. Made sure that my, my supervision understood that I had a role to play, that this is important to me. This is part of who I am. And so instead of surprising folks with orders or with, you know, uh, leaving for a drill weekend, uh, it was um, a symbiotic relationship. And I think my management was able to observe that the things I was doing, the skills I was learning, the experience I was uh, accumulating in the military was going to pay dividends back at Eastman. I am so glad you brought that up. And I, I want to just kind of get a little bit more information on yeah. you and your vo- uh, viewpoints on this, what you were learning in the military, yeah. either the hard or the soft skills, how they were impacting your Eastman career and your Eastman leadership, and what what more were you able to bring to your teams, either as a piece of the team or a leader of the team, that you feel like was rooted in your military service? Yeah, sure. So uh, my 20 years in the military really revolved around three main assignments. Uh, I was an intelligence officer for five years, security commander for the middle 12, and then a wing executive officer uh, for the last three um, you can talk about all the things that, that military members are, are typically uh, equated to. You know, it's uh, service before self, it's excellence in everything we do, commitment to a cause, all of that. Uh, but those three assignments that I had prepared me in different ways. In the intelligence career field, highly technical career field, uh, it helped me to understand uh, that systems and, and, and processes can help uh, an individual, that uh, the system is bigger than the individual. With security, that, that's a tough job, right? Uh, uh, commanding, you know, 140 of the toughest men and women uh, in the Air Force uh, taught me that, uh, that command, uh, there's a time for command, but there's also a time for developing. There's a time for uh, pausing 
uh, to celebrate. Mm-hmm. My unit, I'm not saying this to be egocentric, but my unit was four times the most outstanding security unit in the entire uh, world, I guess, um, at least in the U.S. Uh, DOD. And so my challenge there was to understand that no matter how good you are, there's always room for improvement. I took that on for my squadron, took that on for myself, and I feel like I've taken that on as a coach at Eastman as well. Yeah. Everyone has room for development. Yeah. yeah, I guess how does that translate? Uh, so when you're working with you know airmen and, and you're in you know uh, in military kind of mm-hmm. mode, mm-hmm. The, a lot of those folks know your background. We've all gone through similar things. There's expectations on excellence, mm-hmm. standards, disciplines, all of those sort of things. Mm-hmm. How does that translate when you you know you know you're in a civilian company? Not everyone has the same background. Mm-hmm. Not everyone has the same training. Not everyone is as motivated, you know, maybe for a common purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that alter your, or does it alter, you know, your, your mode of leadership uh, when you approach, you know, those kind of high-performing teams and say, hey, you know, we, we have room for improvement, and this is where we're setting the bar? Yeah, so, Travis, I would say that the 20 years I spent wearing the uniform, have, they informed me of what is possible, what mm-hmm. is achievable if you have everyone pulling the rope in the same direction. Yep. You know from your days in yep. the infantry yep. that if you've got all your troops going the same direction, you're undefeatable, mm-hmm. right? So that, that lesson I brought back to Eastman and, and learned very quickly that as a civilian supervisor or manager or today as a director, that I, I can't simply make rules and, mm-hmm. and dispatch them and expect the organization to accept them. So, yep. you know, we do a lot of change management at Eastman through ADCAR or through, through other techniques, but at, at its root, it is, if we have a common purpose, we have a common vision, yep. a common cause, yep. uh, then we can achieve even higher heights. And that's kind of the approach that I've tried to use in my 25 years here. Yep. I really like that. So um, a question we have posed to a few other uh, people that we've interviewed is, if you had the opportunity to go back, hmm. Would you have joined a different branch of the military? <laughs> so this is one Air Force member asking another Air yeah. Force member. Yeah, and disregarding the Army member <laughs> sitting Army here. Guy, yeah. Uh, no, I, I was exactly where I belonged. Um, you know, I, I, I took flying lessons, uh, civilian pilot stuff. I, I love aviation. Um, and my brother was Army. My, my grandfather was Navy. So, yeah, maybe I was, you know, hitting for the cycle. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I was asking my brother, who was at, my, at one time my hero, uh, asking me, what would you do? I, I've got this, this need to serve. What would you do? Being an Army guy, I thought he'd say, oh, go green, man. <laughs> and he said, no, uh, ask yourself a question. Uh, do you want to walk to work or do you want to ride to work? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to sleep in a foxhole or do you want to sleep in a hotel? You know, <laughs> hotel. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, it's kind of jovial, you know, yeah. but it was like, hey, the, the Air Force will appreciate you for your intellect. The yeah. Army can and, and do. Travis, yeah. you're a very intellectual person. But, but the general uh, outlook for Air Force was uh, we, need, we need a lot of smart people, um, and uh, I felt like I belonged there. So, yeah, it, it's been great to me. Not, not one complaint about my time in the Air Force. Yeah, that was, that was kind of some reflection, I think, that I had. I, every time I landed on an Air Force base, I was like, man, this is so nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What? Where did I go wrong? Yeah, in Eastman terms, we would West call Point. It, yeah. In Eastman terms, we would call the Air Force the, the Cadillac crew. <laughs> right. Well, I remember uh, 
any Air Force members that were on Army posts got subsidized living uh, allowances because Army so standards were, yeah. Substandard so housing, yeah. I think yeah. I got that one time, yeah. Right. <laughs> so the only thing I would change maybe is that I, I, I wish I had uh, found an opportunity to navigate all of life's demands and stay in a little bit longer. And I got out right at 20 years, so you know I have a military pension waiting on me. I, I, I paid my dues mm-hmm. to my country. Uh, but I probably had more to give. I retired at mm-hmm. age 41 um, and uh, was in the middle of Air War College. So what was next for me was full bird colonel. Mm-hmm. Uh, to my understanding, the next step for me would have been uh, uh, chief of staff in Nashville uh, as a brigadier general. And it might have been cool to be yeah. known as general. Yeah. Uh, and, and for our audience... Why did you retire? What was what was that pivotal moment in yeah. your life that said, okay, this is my time to retire? Yeah, so life's demands again. Um, yeah, so this was uh, late 2010. I'd been a fibers guy at Eastman for, uh, what would that be, uh, 14 years, 15 years or something. And um, Lynn Schaefer, the division head for fibers manufacturing, asked me to go to Korea and be the site manager. Um, I was in my 20th year. Uh, so really tough decision, uh, but again, life's demands. No one part of that sphere is any more important than another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I felt the calling. You guys, both of you guys, know what it's like to have a calling uh, and to be needed. And in in my interpretation, Lynn was giving me my op order. Mm-hmm. We need you. We need your command. You need to be our battlefield commander in Korea. Yeah. And that's something I couldn't say no to. So. Yeah, I expedited my 20th year. I fulfilled all the requirements and actually left the base uh, in in reserve kind of and, and retired officially later that yeah. year. So re- retired from one to go serve another purpose. So, so Tony, uh, you know, extraordinary career, not just in military service, also, you know, serving at Eastman. I'm, I'm guessing you've had challenges and obstacles along the way, a great support group with family, However, I'm, I'm guessing that you didn't do it without any sort of mentorship. Yeah. And that's something that we talk about, you know, uh, as veterans, you know, having a battle buddy, yeah. uh, having somebody, you know, either that's mentoring you or just, you know, have a great friend. Uh, whether they were military or they were civilian, talk to us about one of, yeah. one of your mentors throughout your, your life or your career that has assisted in some of these tough decisions and navigating to the, the type of person that you are right now and, and, and the career that you've had. Yeah, so yeah, first I'd say generally speaking, I would encourage everyone who's listening to this podcast to find their own battle buddy, or my, my words, squad leader, uh, to, to help you through. Uh, in, in my particular case, I don't know that I could single out one person that, mm-hmm. that is my one and only uh, reference for right. that. I, I, I take your point to an extreme. I, I'm, a, I'm a product of a, of a community mm-hmm. of, of mentors and teachers and coaches and battle buddies. Uh, I consider what I bring to Eastman, what I brought to the military when I was there, to be an eclectic uh, mirror image of what I've experienced over the years. So, sure, I could go down the list and name a dozen people at Eastman, you know, Bill Rowell, Hanukkah Counts, Michael Chum. Uh, in the military, Bruce Lonas, uh, Wally Hauser. Um, but I think it would do injustice to yeah. everyone yeah. who took time and attention to give me care and concern. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, so, kind of a more lighthearted question: Looking at your experience in the military, what's your 
favorite moment, whether it was funny, it was just, <laughs> it was something you look back on and you're like, okay, that, that was my military service and just a snapshot. Share, share with us one of those memories. Okay, well, I probably can't give you the, the funnest story. You know, I was a cop, and you know, we get in a lot of mischief. Yes. Um, you know, we, we had a lot of fun hosting the Thunderbirds and Blue Angels and, and going out to the O Club after them and you know, partying with those guys. That, that was a hoot. Uh, but maybe the, the day that stands out the most is as a security guy. You know, I, I was responsible for airbase security. We hosted uh, President George W. Bush. Uh, in 2002, maybe. Uh, this was when I was mobilized, right? That was their full-time protecting mm-hmm. the base. Air Force One came in. My senior master sergeant was soon to be promoted to chief. So a couple of months in advance, we worked with Secret Service. We worked with protocol. We worked with the dignitaries, uh, with, with W's office. And uh, when he returned from his event, he didn't get on Air Force One. He came over to... To, to me, I had my senior with me, and George W. Bush promoted uh, Chief Master Sergeant Terry Hickel on that day. Oh, so that's awesome. There's not many Chief Master Sergeants that can say they were pinned yeah. by the Commander-in-Chief. So yeah. that, that's a highlight of my career. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. That's absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, when we look at, you know, we're coming towards the end and want to wrap up, so I've got one more question, yeah. then you'll have a moment to share any advice with our listeners. So my final question is, as a leader at Eastman, who is a leader in the military, there are a lot of similarities between veterans and civilians, but there's also a lot of differences. And so when we have other leaders at Eastman who are leading both civilians and military members, do you have any advice for them? Um... Sure, I'll go back to my own experience because I think through that lens, right? I mean, what has worked for me, I think, could work for anyone else. Uh, don't go into battle alone. None of us would do that in the military. I don't think we should do that in civilian life either. Uh, no one listening to my voice right now has all the answers. There's a lot of smart people around you, so I would encourage everyone to build a community of practice around you. Seek out, um, proactively seek out coaches uh, mentors, advisors in your life. You will be a better employee, uh, citizen soldier, uh, spouse, uh, parent, whatever, uh, if you take the advantage of people who really want to give. That's the one thing I've seen at Eastman is everyone wants to give to someone else. Take advantage of that. That's, that's my biggest advice. Awesome. So closing statement, we're right at times, but feel free to elaborate. Any any thoughts, anything, it doesn't even have to be military, events, civilian. If you just have a piece of advice you could share with our listenership about anything at all, what would you want your final impact statement to be? Well, for this podcast and, and what you're trying to do, uh, I, I, would, I would try to uh, put my comments around the fact that we should be very proud of, of who we are as a company the support that Eastman has given to its military. Um, we, we, we have something unique and special here. And uh, I would ask everyone who's listening, take time to reflect and pause and just think of, uh, of how good we have it at Eastman. Eastman is a super company to work for, and, uh, and we're not done yet. Thanks to you and Travis, I know we're going to achieve even higher heights. And so I'm just yeah, pr- proud to be an Eastmanite. God bless Eastman. Well, thank you very much, Tony, and to our listeners, stay tuned for more interviews and topics to come.